New York City can come across as an impersonal place, but if you truly want to feel like you're part of a small community, you might want to head down to your local bar. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. My guest this morning is Jeff Klein. She's the author of a new book called The History and Stories of the Best Bars of New York. Jeff, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, George. I should have emphasized she, because your name is Jeff with one F. That's right. Always has been. Where does that come from? From Jennifer and from my mother. Jennifer. She, See, I did not think of short for Jennifer. It's short for Jennifer. Well, we're not here to talk about your name. We're here to talk about <laughs> bars. You can talk. It's always the first question people ask I'm me. sure. I'm yeah. sure it is. Well, would you agree with that assessment that bars offer a sense of place? Absolutely. And I think that you see that in New York, especially because it's such a city of neighborhoods. And it's a terrific meeting place for people from the time that the Dutch came all the way till 9-11 and after. What prompted you to write a book about the bars here? Well, you know, first of all, I love bar people. I love bar culture. I worked in restaurants for 14 years in the New York area. And I just, bar owners are very unique people because there's a lot of ways to make money aside from, you know, feeding people food and giving them liquor and staying up late at night. So I wanted to bring to, um, kind of bring out some of my experiences working in restaurants in the area. And uh, Turner Publishing was looking for someone to do a historical book on New York City bars, and I jumped at the chance. So I'm very happy that I got to do it because it was a lot of fun. There are many, many bars in New York City. Your book includes 30 of them. Right. Well, I interviewed 50 different bar owners and at 50 different bars, and the publisher kind of picked from that the 30 oldest. Whenever you write best in any list, title, or anything, you're setting yourself up, and there's always omissions. That's the next book. <laughs> no doubt New Yorkers have sought refuge and comfort in New York City's bars all through the years, most recently during 9-11. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting because um, almost everyone, especially in lower Manhattan, had a 9-11 story. And some of them were just very compelling, like um, Milano's, which is down near the Bowery. I think it's one of the last Bowery bars left of the old. There were like 40 within a, I don't know, eight block radius. And it's like the last one left. And that morning, because they open at eight, you know, the streams of people coming up from lower Manhattan covered in dust, like totally dazed, without shoes, without jackets, bloody. You know, if they didn't go to an emergency room. They went into a bar, and they just didn't stop working all day. And all the bars in lower Manhattan that stayed open were able to stay open, did such a... I know it sounds corny, but they did a great service because people were just totally stunned. And you see how bars were so important historically always because this is where people went for news. You know, right up, to, and not just the news, but to talk about it. And you see that throughout history, of course, before there were newspapers and before there were CNN and anything else. But now you see it really for the comfort you were just talking about, just the camaraderie. And I just don't think we'll ever feel that way about Starbucks. A lot of people stumbled into the city's bars during the 1965 blackout. <laughs> and, and the 77 one. You know, whenever the lights are out, the kids are going to party. And they partied major in 65. And all the older guys that ran bars back then... They were just talking about what a ball they had. It was like a three-day party because the lights stayed off a long time, right? The electricity didn't go right back on. Like Not it immediately. Stayed mm -mm. Off. No, it was like days and up, up in the Bronx and things. It was off even longer. 
I think. It's crazy, though, because you have stories in the book of people catching on fire. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, they, <laughs> I think there were two different bars. I know P&G, they went and they got, like, oil. I think they went to the church next door, and they borrowed oil from the from the priest, and they made, like, Earthsat's oil lamps. And then, of course, like, they're all tanked, I'm sure. And, like, the whole thing went up in flames and, like, singed the ceiling. And, and he had to come and have it painted the next day. And it was just hysterical. But, you know, all over, they were giving away food and milk and everything to all the mothers in the neighborhood because they couldn't keep it cold. It was a lot of fun for a lot of people. I got from your book, Jeff, that bar owners here in the city are very protective of their customers, not just the regulars, but, of course, the celebrities, too. Yeah. Well, I don't think you'll stay in that business, and people won't come to your bar, especially if you're going to have paparazzi outside. So as many people that, you know, have a manager that will call page six, there are probably five that wouldn't think of it. But most of the bar owners that you spoke to said, yeah, it's great that we have celebrities that come here, but you know what? My regular is just as important. Yeah, especially in the older family-run places. That's who their loyalty is to. And in in some of these bars that have been in their neighborhoods for a long time, you look at a place like Peter McManus Tavern, you know, J-Mo McManus is like the friendliest guy in New York. You can stop looking now because he's there. And his dad was a legend in the neighborhood in Chelsea at a time when Chelsea was really going downhill. You know, it wasn't the neighborhood it is now. And he would have these cleanup crew. You know, he'd have people come in and clean the neighborhood. And then he'd give out uh, beer and hot dogs to them. And he had stickball contests with the kids. And he was so beloved in that neighborhood. And he would loan money to people and, you know, just... Right, shirt off his back. And that kind of thing you don't see in a chain restaurant. You see it in the neighborhoods between especially the regulars and these old-time bar owners. Boston has cheers, but you write in the book that New York's bar where everyone knows your name is Peter McManus. It is. It's one of my favorites. In fact, it's my probably my favorite typical Irish New York City corner bar. It's just, it's, it's a real institution, and it's the longest family-run bar in New York since uh, 1911 is when they opened it. So, And he's got uh, people working there since 20 years ago. When you have that kind of loyalty, it says a lot. I would think that if you were a celebrity here in New York City, you would get preferential treatment at bars, but that's not always the case, and there's a case in history that I love, Grace <laughs> Kelly at J.G. Mellon's. Yeah, she had to wait. I think she waited half an hour for a table, and she's drinking a Heineken out of a bottle, which I, is a picture I really wish I had seen. They didn't have it, but... Yeah, people wait. I mean, especially in the old days. I think that was some of the cachet of going to the divier kinds of places, too. We can't talk about the history of New York City bars without talking about prohibition. Many of the bars here served as speakeasies during that time. Right. Yeah, New York has, you know, first of all, you can imagine New Yorkers responding to a law like prohibition, which was a federal law for the first three years. So come and tell me in New York how I'm going to live my life. I don't think so. And secondly, New Yorkers are so creative and they're just hysterical. So they would come up with all these different ways of going around the law, um, whether it was putting hidden doorways in or little trap doors or running a flower shop in the front. Like, how funny is that? Like, you know, who was it? Was it P.J. Clark's? He had a flower shop in the front. Like, who would who would be fooled by that? Nobody. And uh, Chumley's, of course, is the most famous speakeasy besides 21. And Chumley's down on Bedford Street has two entrances. One is on a little court, and one is at 86 Bedford. And that's where the term 86 comes from in the restaurant industry. It means, like, get rid of something, get rid of a bad customer, get rid of a dish. 
and it's because the cops would call up and tell the bartenders, we're coming in to raid you, 86 your customers. It meant send them out the 86 Bedford door while we come in through Pamela Court. I was so glad to have learned that in your book because I had no <laughs> idea where that term came from. Yeah, it was fun. I had a lot of fun going to Chumley's because they still have the trap doors and they still work. And I got to go through them. Two go out into the alleyway and one goes down the basement. You write in the book that the 21 Club was no ordinary speakeasy. No, it was the creme de la creme because that's what they wanted to do. They set out to make the creme de la creme bar and restaurant. They had the finest food, the finest of everything. And then when Prohibition came in, there you have it. And they just took every means they could. They had a lot of money bankrolled into it because their customer base was very wealthy. And so they bought the townhouse next door, and they took um, a mason and came in, and they made a door. And I went down there, and I got to see the door. It still works. It's, what, 70 years later. I think they use a barbecue skewer to open it. The mechanism is like something out of the Fort Knox, and it just swings open without a sound. There's a whole set of rooms back there which were private drinking rooms where Jimmy Walker would go with his girlfriends, and it's all wine cellars now. But it was just unbelievable, the stuff they would do. They even had a system where they would hit a button when the cops would... I think they got raided twice. All the shelves would collapse. All the glassware, all the liquor would just go down the walls into these special, like, spouts where it would break in the basement. And, you know, you can't be fined for having broken liquor bottles in your basement, and that's how they got out of it. It was really something, though. There was one bar here in the city that had a tunnel between the police station and the bar. (laughs) How New York is that? It's like, first of all, I'd like to clarify that point, if I may. It wasn't between the police headquarters and the bar. It was between police headquarters and the whorehouse upstairs. Let's be (laughs) clear about this, Jordan. Now, we're not casting aspersions on the police headquarters. No, but there was a, a, a tunnel that was dug, very beautiful. I mean, it's like a nice tunnel, not like your average, you know, they're digging a tunnel to hide a body, which was what they did plenty, believe me. This was dug out by New York's finest, I'm sure. And it, you can stand in it, and they use it as their wine cellar now at O'Neill's. And this uh, O'Neill's Grand Street is what we're talking about, and it used to be called the press, press room. And it's where the reporters hung out because it was right across from the old police headquarters. And they dug this tunnel underneath, and it doesn't even stop in the bar. It goes to the back staircase that only went upstairs, and that's where the prostitutes were. Brothels and bars go hand-in-hand throughout New York City history in the early days. Beds and booze. You can't get better than that. I mean, you know, it's one stop. One stop shopping. (laughs) And I just crack up when I think about it because it's like they didn't have to be seen in the street going in or going out. So, And what's ironic about that is that bar was used in the setting uh, for Scout, which was on Sex in the City. I thought that was kind of cute. Most of the bars during Prohibition, as you mentioned, tried to hide the fact that they were serving alcohol. But not one bar. The no. White Horse Tavern did not hide it. No, they didn't. And you know why? Um, Jimmy Walker lived very close by. Jimmy Walker's father had owned a bunch of real estate in the West Village. And, you know, he was um, mayor during the time. And, again, you're talking about a federal law that the local cops didn't want to enforce. You're talking about a time when... Uh, how do I put this? A lot of cops were Irish, and a lot of bars were Irish, and they, you know, their parents drank there, they drank there. They weren't going to enforce a federal law. So for the first three years, it was a total joke. And another bar which didn't have to uh, worry about prohibition was McSorley's, of course. Um, they served near beer. They had, I think they had the only license to serve near beer during prohibition. So they were open the whole time. 
Okay, let's get to the root of the oldest bar in New York City because there is a dispute about which bar is the oldest in New York City. Is it the Bridge Cafe? Is it not the Bridge Cafe? Is it McSorley's? I don't know. Which one? Well, it's the Bridge Cafe, and I know McSorley's people don't like to hear that because they do have that claim that they were legally open during Prohibition, so they're the oldest continuously running. I think it's 1854 that they open McSorley's, and they did have a license to sell near beer. And, of course, they sold their own ale and porter the whole time. But let's face it, so few bars really followed the law. And uh, the Bridge Cafe was opened in 1794. It was opened as a grocery, which was like packaged goods, is what they used to call bars in the old days. And they were selling liquor and dispensing liquor all the way through till today. So, you know, they're the oldest. Sorry. <laughs> there are other places that come up with it, like we've been continuously running and this long with this particular bar in this location, but but the Bridge Cafe is the oldest. Many of the bars in your book are incredibly old. It amazes me that they have stood the test of time in a city like New York where it's ever-changing. It is ever-changing. That's another reason why I wanted to do the book was because New York is very historically significant. But we don't have a lot of old buildings. So the ones that are there really need to be, you know, kind of cherished, preserved, um, appreciated for whatever history they have to offer. And I know a lot of people think, oh, bars. What's an old bar? It smells like beer. What's going on? But, you know, you look at Francis Tavern. Thank God we have it because we almost lost it in 1903. They almost tore it down to put in what would have been the first parking lot in New York. And the um, Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York came in and said, you can't tear this place down. This is where Washington said goodbye to his troops. You know, this is where Alexander Hamilton started our economy. <laughs> you know, he ran the Treasury Department there because it, the, it was the capital of the United States for about a year and a half or two years, New York. So, you know, these locations, there are not many left, but the ones we have, we have to cherish. So. It's great when you get landmark designation because that means your building will stay around, but it also puts certain restrictions on you about changes that you can make. And there is the ear bar right. in New York, and they did something... Very unique with their sign. <laughs> I know. You know, take it to college students to come up with a good solution. Because I think Rip Heyman and his friends were living there when they were at Columbia. And they had to get around the Landmarks uh, Preservation Committee and all the regulations. Because that building is, I think, from 1812. It's very old. And um, so it said bar in because every bar had rooms upstairs for whatever reason. And so they just painted over the little parts of the B that would make it a B and turned it into an E. They but just it's named perfect. It the ear. It's so I know. perfect. Isn't it perfect? I love that solution. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. I'm joined in studio this morning by Jeff Klein. She is the author of The History and Stories of the Best Bars of New York. Now, when you have bars that are so old, you're going to have ghost stories, and you got plenty of ghost stories in this book. There are a lot of ghost stories. It was funny because when I was at Francis Tavern, uh, the security people there were telling me about how when they work late at night, they hear footsteps upstairs. They hear, like, whole rooms as if there's a party in the room. And this one guy in particular is from Jamaica, and he said, you know, in Jamaica we have our fair share of ghosts, but this place really scares me. And I said to him, have you worked there at night? He said, during renovations, I was the night watchman. He goes, it was terrifying. So it was pretty funny. And also the Bridge Cafe has, um, they have a ghost. The Parkside Lounge has a very active ghost in the basement. And there were about three tunnels that were used in the Underground Railroad. 
at the park under what is now the Parkside Lounge, and they've been filled in. But they um, they've had lots of problems with poltergeisty things going on in their basement. I once heard that Dylan Thomas haunts the White Horse Tavern, but you didn't have that in the book. Did you hear that when you were there? No, the way I heard it was English majors who love Dylan Thomas haunt the White Horse Tavern. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of truth to that. I know. No, I've never heard that he haunts the White Horse Tavern, but it wouldn't surprise me. He spent a lot of time there. Talking about the dead, there are a couple of bars in New York City, you write about them in the book, where the remains, the ashes of former customers are still in the bars. I know. It's really unbelievable. Well, uh, McSorley's has had a fair number of wakes and memorial services there because they're, they probably have the most intensely loyal, long-term, regular base. In fact, you can't even call yourself a regular till you've gone there 30 years. So you can imagine when you die, your family feels they have to do something there. But I know at P.J. Clark's, when they did their renovation, they did a beautiful renovation, and they had at least one uh, urn of human remain of ashes and the daughter came to the renovation like the reopening party and she had those ashes in her arms the whole time it was like she wasn't letting them go for anything but you know you figure people spend half their life sitting there you know why not it's better than a cemetery so many interesting things on the walls of bars throughout new york city from chicken bones to sharks <laughs> to sharks and the shark bar i mean that the shark that they took out of the shark bar, they came running down the avenue with it. I remember Brian was telling me about it, that when they bought it, everyone was concerned what was going to happen to the shark. And it disappeared sometime between opening the, the spring lounge and the shark bar closing. We don't know where it went. Maybe it went swam upstream. but We know. should say that the previous owners liked to go fishing for sharks, so they hung sharks on the walls of... Yes, yes. They like to go fishing. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he owed somebody money and they came and took it, too, because that guy was a bit of an underground dude. Wasn't he found dead on Staten Island? He was found dead on Staten Island. (laughs) And and I remember when I was interviewing at the Spring Lounge, they're like, buying this place was really hard. She wanted $100,000 in a paper bag, and I'm like, to buy it. I was like, you're kidding. No. And her husband was found dead on Staten Island. I'm like, wow, this is getting better and better. But, um, yeah, there's all kinds of memorabilia. And if you go into McSorley's, the memorabilia has never been dusted. And now it has its own patina, patina exponentially expanded. It's, there's chicken bones hanging up all over. And, yeah, don't ask. Go, have you ever been in there? I actually have not been in there. I owe it to yourself. And Keene's probably is one of the most interesting Keene's Steakhouse because they have the 50,000 clay pipes hanging up in the ceiling. And um, that's another place where people would come back when their grandfather died or their father died. Everybody had a numbered pipe. They had a pipe steward that would go and find the pipe and bring it to you when you came there uh, to drink. And nowadays you can go back if you have a family relative that had one or an ancestor and they'll get it for you. But they took down every single one of those pipes and cleaned them and cleaned the whole interior and put it back up. It's just amazing. Pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Talking about steakhouses, the Bull and the Bear Steakhouse and Bar included Mm -hmm. in your book, Inside the Waldorf Astoria, mm-hmm. the first place on the eastern seaboard to serve the prime grade of certified Angus beef. Wow. Isn't that something? Well, you know, the Wall Street guys, the, the Madison Avenue guys, and all, of course, the 19th century with all the beef loving that was going on. It was like a beef orgy in New York, a beef and oyster orgy in New York City. So, of course, you know, they have to have the best of the best of the Waldorf Astoria. And so they brought it in, and it's, I don't think it's ever left. I think they're serving more and more every year. Quite a few of the bars in your book are based in hotels. Yeah. Well, you know, 
there weren't restaurants as we know them today. There were groceries. If you look at the old lithographs, you'll see groceries. Those weren't grocery stores. Like when they were like packaged goods. They sold liquor, and they you could go and get a shot of something. Let's hope it was liquor. Maybe it was alcohol with coloring in it. But And then there were alehouses and taverns and things like that. And all of them had rooms upstairs because people didn't travel for work the way they do now. And if you were going someplace else besides your home to eat, you probably had to sleep somewhere too. Those were the nice ones. The not-so-nice ones had prostitutes working upstairs because beds and booths, as we said before. And then in the 19th century, um, before restaurants really came into being just separate restaurants, which is kind of a French thing, we still had this sort of hotel uh, lobby that would have several different restaurants in it. And during the 19th century, New York just took off as a world capital, and they were competing with the best of the best in Paris and London. And the hotels that went up along Fifth Avenue and and just were the finest in the in the country, and they had some of the finest restaurants and bars in the country. And there's some of them are still there today. Some great murals on the walls of these bars. One <laughs> is featured on the cover of your book at the King Cole Bar at the right. St. Regis Hotel. Right, right. That's a beautiful cover, by the way. I love what Carrie did with the cover of the book. Um, Tell us about Carrie. Carrie is a photographer, and uh, she right now she lives up on Nantucket, but she came down and she took some beautiful pictures. She's done um, calendars of the New York City Fire Department, calendars of the New York City Police Department. She's done many books for Turner, in fact. Carrie Hazelgrove. Yes, I'm sorry, Carrie Hazelgrove. And she's the photographer for the book. But this is a great mural. What's so funny about it, of course, is it's very tongue-in-cheek. It was painted to go up over the bar, first of all. It wasn't like a mural that they took and put up in there. And because it was painted to go up over the bar, the the artist could be a little bit cheeky. So he painted the pages who are sitting around King Cole with expressions on their faces. And the expressions are showing that King Cole is a merry old soul who's letting one go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, you'd be sitting there drinking, kind of looking at the details when suddenly you realize that the artist has painted that into it. It's kind of funny. Another interesting thing about the King Cole Bar is that the Bloody Mary was invented there. That's right. But it was called the Red Snapper because I think it was the owner's wife. She didn't like the sound of the name Bloody Mary. It just didn't sound nice enough to her because it's, it's a very elegant bar. It's beautiful. I think the week before I interviewed there, Demi Moore had just been in. And, uh, you know, you still get a lot of celebrities there. With or without Ashton Kusher? Uh, without. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to check. Sorry, I'm not starting a rumor, am I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Another great mural, or murals, I should say, at a hotel bar, the Bemelman's Bar in the mm-hmm. Carlisle Hotel. Mm-hmm. These murals done by Lud- Ludwig Bemelman, the man behind Madeline. Yes, and they're they're delightful. And, of course, it's another place where you can go sit in a beautifully lush, quiet environment and just appreciate the artwork in there. It's very nice. And I think he painted those before he wrote Madeline uh, or while he was writing it. So it was a good way for him to make money. A lot of writers and artists also lived at these hotels and would exchange their services sort of for the owners as part of... um, part of their stay. Really a very rich history between writers and artists and New York City's bars, but especially at the Oak Room in the Algonquin. Right. First of all, right now, it's a wonderful venue for jazz. Anybody that likes jazz um, has to make it uh, one of on their list of places to go. But of course, when you talk about the writers who lived there and went there, because they were all 
uh, it was when the New Yorker started, and they were all staff writers, or several of them were staff writers, and they decided that they would convene for lunch. And it was supposed to be good for them to get together and talk and drink. Of course, the drinking took longer and longer and longer, and then they'd go to someone's apartment afterwards, and it was during Prohibition. So some of them decided, we better just meet at the Algonquin because they're not going to serve us in the Oak Room, and we'll get some work done if we're sitting there and talking rather than going to someone's apartment or to... 21 Club, which is where they would usually head when they were done. Some great works have been written in New York City bars, including O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. Yes, and there are people that still come back. They come back to these places. They want to go to where these uh, works were written. Liquor inspires a lot, some bad, mostly good. And that's why I say, you know, we'll never feel about Starbucks the way we do about our neighborhood bar, because when we go out, it creates a convivial environment. And uh, for writers especially, they need, when you're writing, you're writing at home a lot. You have to get out of the house. You have to get out of those four walls and be with people, observe them. It's part of your process. It's like being an artist and going out in nature or, you know, wherever it is that you you need to be to, to feel your art. And, and I think that bars provide a lot of that for writers over the years. There's one bar in New York City that you would think is a very old bar, but it's not. It's an Irish bar. I don't recall the name, but you have it in the book. Yes, it's Molly's Pub in Shabeen. And I, when I first went in there, I actually had reviewed it for Shecky's because I used to do reviews for Shecky's uh, Lounge and Bar Guide here in New York. And I went in there and I thought, oh, this place is really old. This is like McSorley's because it's got a cedar fire in the fireplace. It's got the plank floors. It's got the old kind of rough bar in the back and sawdust on the floor. But it was actually built in 1960. It's the youngest of the bars that's in the book. You mentioned the fact that women weren't always allowed in New York City's bars. There was one bar that actually had a women's window, though, where women can go to the window and get alcohol. Well, a lot of bars had wives' windows or... um, I'm trying to think of what else they would call it, but they you often called it a wives' window, and especially if they were on a corner. And several of the bars that are still remaining were on corners, and um, they would have a window there where the kids could come or the wife would come because they weren't allowed to go inside the bar. And of course, everybody remembers McSorley's because in 1970 it went co-ed <laughs> amidst a lot of uh, controversy, and um, the owner of the bar. Uh, refused to go in, she herself, even though her father had owned it, she had promised him on her deathbed that she wouldn't go in. Her son, when he took over, he, he begged her to go in. You know, come on, I want you to be the first woman served. She said, no, I promised my father I wouldn't go in, so she wouldn't go in. And uh, it was the kind of a, a time and place where, you know, we're talking about a very old model from Europe coming over. The first time I went to Ireland, there were many pubs where I was not permitted to sit at the bar. Um, I had to go into the the dining area and sit there. I couldn't sit at the physical bar, and that was in the late 70s. So it still was prevalent over there. Great family histories involved with many of these bars, and one of my favorite stories involves Marion's Continental Restaurant and Lounge, a Uh, great mother-son story there. Yeah, you know, it's what's really nice about that was uh, her son, uh, Marion, came uh, over from Hungary, and she had a sort of background where she was sort of hiding from the... uh, the, 
KGB. She was she had defected. She was a fashion model, and when she was in France for Fashion Week, I guess what it was, or the Paris shows, she decided to leave, and um, she was followed by the KGB over here to America. But when she came here, she was very young, and of course, like a lot of European women, she didn't quite tell her age. Even her son didn't know how old she was, Richard, but he said, I think she was about 17, and she spoke French, and she knew a lot about cooking, and she was a wonderful natural hostess. She had tremendous parties in her little apartment. And she hooked up with a French chef, and they decided to open a place up. And they opened a place up down on the Bowery, and it became very popular. And uh, it operated for several years, and a lot of famous people went there, uh, Hollywood stars, all kinds of people. And then when it closed, it was closed for a while. I think it was a hardware store for a while. And then her son came back in and opened it up, and he's taken it to a whole new level. He's got he's got uh, burlesque going on down there. He's got He's tried to restore it sort of. One area, he's restored it to how it used to look with the banquettes and everything else. And he's really taken it to a whole new level. It's 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 neat. One bar that I've never been to in New York City is Pete's Tavern, but I expect that I will somehow make my way there at some point in my life because the owner says sooner or later, everyone comes to Pete's. Right. Well, it's I have to say that's Buster Smith, the bartender, and he says everyone comes to Pete's, and he's right because they do. And uh, it's it's a terrific spot. It was started out, you know, right around the corner were all these different German restaurants because that was like the German neighborhood at that time. And I think it was called Weiermeisters, Weiermeisters. And over time, it became a bar. And it has, you, when you go in there, you'll see the beautiful mahogany and you'll see the frosted glass. It's very pretty. And uh, it's just one of those places that everybody has gone to. And in fact, I think uh, Joe Kennedy ran the liquor there as the bootlegger, because Joe Kennedy was a big bootlegger in New York during the Prohibition. That's where he made he made all his money in Prohibition, Joe Kennedy, you know. He made a lot of money. I shouldn't say all his money. He made a lot of money in Prohibition. And Jackie and Jack went there, and then John Jr., when he came in one day and saw his parents' picture on the wall, he started drinking there. He would go there sometimes. So it was kind of neat. Lots to discover at New York City's bars. Jeff Klein is the author of The History and Stories of the Best Bars of New York. It's out now from Turner Publishing. Jeff, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Um, You know, I like to say in every corner of New York there's history, and on every corner there's a bar. Well said. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can find past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. My thanks to producer Jody Abergan. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. 